This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis. This is episode 60. Uh, And this week we are looking at philanthropy, uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, So this podcast, uh, I'll be honest up front, is a little bit of a a cheat in that um, I was asked to take part in an event uh, fairly recently, in fact yesterday as I record this, um, organised by the Community Foundation for Tyne and Weir in Northumberland, who uh, some of whom I know listen to this, so a nice shout out to them. Um, But they held a sort of mini festival called Powered by Philanthropy, um, looking particularly focused around kind of issues of the role of philanthropy in diversity and inclusion um, and I spoke uh, at an event that they um, they organised around um, what has philanthropy uh, done to help diversity uh, and equality um, and uh, I was asked or tasked particularly with doing um, a presentation about the kind of historic role that philanthropy has played in kind of promoting diversity and inclusion within society uh, and that's what I'm going to base this week's podcast on um so if you were there at the event uh lucky you you've got an opportunity uh to hear it all again um and if you weren't uh congratulations you get to hear it for the first time um i'll also be writing this up as a blog uh, and there's a slide deck that i've got that goes with this and i'll put links of all that in the show notes so if anybody wants you can have a kind of immersive audio visual experience of sitting in a room reading the blog listening to this podcast and looking at a slide deck if that's your uh kind of thing um I should also just sort of make a disclaimer up front, um, and this was something that was said uh, when we were at the event yesterday, which is just to acknowledge that, um, you know, diversity and inclusion and equality are all extremely important issues and ones that people are increasingly kind of aware of and concerned about at this moment in time. But they they are difficult sometimes to talk about because uh, the issues themselves are sensitive and there are sensitivities around, you know, even just the language that we use. Um, to describe people and their identities and and sort of groups so um, I just want to make it you know clear that if I uh, you know accidentally use language that anybody finds uh, non-inclusive or you know doesn't approve of I apologize for that Um, I'm sort of going into this with with as much humility as I possibly can and hoping not to cause offense and certainly I think I managed not to at the event so hopefully I won't today but I should you know should just say that because I recognize there are sensitivities around these things Um, so so what I'm going to do is um, as I say to kind of take a bit of a historic look or relate that to um, kind of current context as I like to do um, and to look really at what um, the historical evidence tells you about the the strengths of philanthropy when it comes to promoting diversity and inclusion but also I think importantly some of its potential weaknesses um, 
and then to look at a few sort of specific examples of uh, issues of diversity and inclusion um, and campaigns to to kind of further them and and how philanthropies played a role and kind of how it demonstrates some of the things that, that I have highlighted. So that's the plan. Uh, without further ado, uh, let's crack on with it. So um, the first thing that I want to, to talk about is some of the strengths of, uh, of philanthropy when it comes to, to diversity and inclusion. And I guess the most fundamental one to start with um, goes to something that I've mentioned uh, on the podcast, I'm sure, before, and I've kind of written about, which is the the fact that within uh, any democracy, um, whether that's a kind of electoral or representative democracy or direct democracy, um, one of the sort of known problems is always that you can get a tyranny of the majority. So this is where it's a sort of flaw within the concept of democracy, where um, by basing things on uh, kind of supporting the views uh, of the majority or those views that have the most support, if you find yourself in the minority, it can be very hard to get your views heard or to express your preferences in any meaningful way. Um, and the point here is that civil society is an important part of overcoming that challenge because it provides a space between the individual and the state in which people can freely associate and come together and find common cause and shared identity. Um, and it allows them to sort of amplify their voices so that minority interests um, can enable themselves to be heard, even if they always remain in the minority. Um, so I think for, from that point of view, it's it's extremely important. I think there's um, there's a great statement of this um, in, a, in a paper that I uh, kind of leaned heavily on when I was preparing this by uh, the historian R.J. Morris, looking at the history of club societies and associations. Um, and the thing I really liked here is he says, one major contribution uh, which the voluntary society has made to ordering the complexities of urban and industrial society has been its contribution to the history of outgroups, uh, as he terms them, so groups which were excluded from a significant share in the legitimate structure of power. Um, and this is something also that Rob Reich has touched on um, in his recent book, Just Giving, um, where he kind of argues that actually... You know, not only is this an important function of civil society, but actually it's the basis for probably the most compelling case for um, allowing uh, tax relief on donations, because this function of civil society um, in providing somewhere where people can freely associate and thereby kind of overcome the tyranny of the majority is sufficiently important that we should not only protect it, but kind of recognise it and, and support it through the tax system. So, so you know, this is kind of widely uh, recognised, I think, by people who, who think about these things as an important function. And I guess, you know, the specific role of philanthropy here is is to support that, because obviously kind of civil society, um, you know, may or may not exist um, anyway, um, but the particular role of sort of philanthropy and, and voluntary giving uh, more broadly is that it provides a sort of vital means of sustaining the health of that civil society. So I guess that brings us on to the question of why philanthropy might be well placed to support civil society in this kind of this crucial uh, role in overcoming the tyranny of the majority. Um, and I guess there's, there's a few reasons here. I mean, one is um, that philanthropy arguably... Um, is particularly well placed to tolerate um, different kinds of risk. Um, now, I think this this claim can get overplayed, um, and I think there are kind of valid questions and ones that I've written about before about whether philanthropy 
genuinely is any better or worse at tolerating risk than the private or public sector because i think sometimes people just assert that it is without really testing um that claim uh, very strongly but i think certainly when it comes to um various different aspects of risk um uh, philanthropy clearly can bear it um, at its best um, uh, in ways that it's sort of hard to see organisations from other sectors bearing it. I mean, it's very obvious to say that philanthropy can bear financial risk, because certainly if you're talking about a donation or a grant, that's essentially 100% financial risk if you're not expecting to get anything back. So that's almost fatuous. But um, I think more important when we're talking about diversity and inclusion is the ability of philanthropy to kind of take political or reputational risks um, because that enables it to support issues or approaches that are deemed too controversial for you know the public sector or the private sector to engage with and I think that is a, a crucial thing at the early stage of supporting kind of marginal causes and bringing them into the mainstream as we'll see um, and I think it's you know it's it's worth saying that there's a pretty strong argument that taking risk is not just sort of a desirable thing for philanthropy to do, but actually a necessity. Um, and this is something I've written about in a blog, which I'm, I'll put a link in the show notes too. But um, I also in the in the, um, the talk I gave uh, put up a slide with um, a quote from the the Nathan Report of 1952, which regular listeners to the podcast will know that I endlessly bang on about but um, I sort of went back to it and came across a quote I hadn't seen before where the secretary of the Carnegie UK Trust at the time uh, who'd given evidence to to this um, committee uh, was quoted in the report as saying I think it is the business of trusts to live dangerously which I think is a wonderful statement of the sort of responsibility and expectation that philanthropic funders should be under to to take you know necessary risks in order to kind of drive society forward um and i think it's this is an important question at the moment when people are raising concerns about the the sort of legitimacy of philanthropy and its role within a democracy um because you know again going to back to rob Reich's arguments you know one of the things he says particularly when you're looking at endowed philanthropy or elite philanthropy it's difficult to justify that solely on the basis of kind of plurality because the scale of resources available to very big donors means that they have a distorting effect and you get a sort of um, plutocratic bias in terms of the specific organisations or causes that they support. But um, another justification that we can offer is that this kind of big philanthropy can play a vital role in what he calls discovery or what we might call sort of you know innovation in terms of testing new models and uh, kind of theories um, and bringing causes to light um, importantly which can move society forwards and this is a role that it performs that neither the market nor the state arguably is is able to to perform and, and that makes it you know worth preserving within within the context of a democracy um and so, you know, that that immediately to me kind of raises a, a secondary question. Um, if we believe that philanthropy is able to take risks in some sense, and that is an important part of its role, what is it about it perhaps that means that it is able to take those risks? Um, I think there are sort of myriad different possible answers to that question, but I, I will focus on two. 
um, that I think are relevant to the question of uh, diversity and inclusion particularly. So one is that philanthropy arguably is able to take a longer term view of issues or sort of work on, on a longer term horizon um, than uh, organisations either in the sort of uh, public or private sector because it's not beholden to short-term political cycles or short-term market cycles, or at least shouldn't be. Um, and this is important because it enables those who are kind of seeking change within society to play a much longer-term game of changing political or public mood, which is important because with uh, a lot of these issues that end up uh, resulting in kind of important social change, it takes a very long time to put all the pieces in place. So you have to be able to stick with them over the long term. And again, it means if you're not beholden to those short term cycles and can sort of ride them out, it means that if you stick with an issue for for the long term as a philanthropic funder, as public opinion or public and political interest may um, sort of fluctuate um, you you can stick with the the issue regardless and do things like build up an evidence base through research develop uh, advocacy capability um, support organizations working in that area kind of build movements so that as and when all the pieces are in place and the time is right to genuinely push for kind of reform or change to policy or legislation all of the pieces are in place and they don't have to be created from scratch. Um, and, you know, that's something that you see quite a, a lot in the in sort of successful campaigns for, for social change. Um, and then the second thing, which is kind of linked to that in terms of why philanthropy can take risks, um, is more about uh, accountability, I guess. So this is the argument that philanthropy is able to go against the grain or sort of challenge the status quo in some in some sense. Um, and here uh, in the slides, I use a quote that I also like to use quite a lot from a social reformer called Thomas Hare, um, who in 1869 um, gave a speech at the Congress of Social Sciences, I think. And he said, I regard endowments as an important element in the experimental branches of political and social science. Uh, and he says, no doubt the nation at large may take on itself the cost of such tentative efforts, but this involves taxation, and the assent of the majority to increase taxes could not be justly demanded by philanthropists or projectors, and certainly would not be obtained until their speculations had taken such a hold of, upon the public mind as no longer to require an exceptional support or propagation. So going back to that kind of question of uh, majority opinion and risk there. And then he finishes by saying, the most important steps in human progress may be opposed uh, to the prejudices, not only of the multitude, but even of the learned and leaders of thought in a particular epoch. So he sort of makes a case that foundations or philanthropists, you know, at their best play a kind of hero heroic role of kind of going against the grain of public opinion and then with the benefit of hindsight some, somehow sometimes they're sort of found to have been you know visionaries and, and end up on the right side of history uh, and the important thing here is that for this to work philanthropy cannot be seen as accountable to public opinion um, and this is a really important point um, at this exact moment in time certainly here in the UK because there's quite a lot of concern and sort of controversy at the moment about the um uh, the understanding of the role of the regulator um, in, in regards to this question, because the Charity Commission for England Wales in its uh, current incarnation, um, uh, the, the leadership and, and the, the chair in particular has made quite a lot of statements about the issue of public trust, but has gone beyond that to 
be seeming seeming to suggest that charities should be somehow measured against the extent to which they conform to public opinion or sort of meet the expectations of public opinion and i think the difficulty here is is that philanthropy and the charities that that it supports absolutely must aim for public benefit so that's kind of you know sort of definitional and i think you know philanthropy and and charities should also try to ensure public trust in how they operate and in the work they're doing but the crucial thing is they should not be beholden to public opinion in terms of the issues they work on or the causes they address because if you to do so would be to to rule out many of the most sort of celebrated examples of of social campaigning that we see in the history of charity because at one point in time if you look back almost all of those are on the wrong side of public opinion um organizations and philanthropists need to be accountable absolutely but that should be to the supporters of an organization or you know more importantly perhaps um to the people and communities that the organization or the philanthropist is trying to serve rather than to the public at large so you know having made that point putting all those things together about risk and the kind of long-term view and going against the grain you sort of get a picture overall and i've got a, a very nice colorful slide about this where philanthropic giving from donors and institutions and the public then kind of plays a really important role in supporting move, movements and organizations and efforts that that drive a kind of cycle from where an issue will be right on the margins of kind of public awareness and public opinion and then through various different activities you know in the early stages developing a sense of identity uh, amongst people within a community building support perhaps outside that community more practical things like strengthening advocacy capability engaging in protest and demonstration then beyond that sort of building longer term political support and public opinion maybe engaging in things like legal challenge you through all of those different means you kind of build up a head of steam that allows you eventually to drive legislative change policy change and social change and that then eventually results in in proper social progress um and this is something you can see very much in the sort of long history of charity campaigning and civil society campaigning certainly here in the UK where you know I something I have said endlessly and it's basically ended up being the sort of central point of the book I wrote that a lot of the major milestones of social progress that we take for granted that have shaped our country have to some degree or other been uh, based on campaigning by uh, philanthropically funded organizations and again to to sort of relate that to the current context i think that's one reason why we should be very concerned about growing political antipathy towards charitable campaigning here in the uk but also you know more broadly across the globe uh, about this sort of wider trend towards the closing space for civil society um where repressive regimes and and sort of less repressive regimes are increasingly kind of clamping down on the freedom to speak out and to to freely associate that is so fundamental to civil society playing this role um at you know speaking truth to power and i think part of the problem here um relates to our understanding of the history because often charitable campaigning or civil society campaigning gets unfairly characterized as some sort of new phenomenon Uh, and one which kind of represents an an unwarranted incursion of charities into the political sphere 
but but the the key point i think is that as soon as you understand the political sphere as being about more than just party politics which i absolutely think we have to and i think there's a danger that we've we've gone too far in our in sort of making our understanding of it tied to to party politics and also if you kind of appreciate the history and 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 all of these these sort of historical examples that there are then it's very obvious to me at least that campaigning by charities and civil society organizations has always been a major driver of social progress um, and that it represents an absolutely crucial part of the system of checks and balances that you need within any healthy democracy and therefore needs to be protected um, so you know that's quite a sort of soapbox moment for me but I, th- I do feel very strongly about this this question um, before I move on from the strengths because I'm aware I'm, this section's already going quite long but don't worry the other sections aren't quite as long um, I just want to, to touch on something else which is that it's worth noting that as well as the outcomes produced through philanthropy being important in terms of driving diversity and inclusion the process itself of philanthropy or voluntary activity can also have value. So the point here is that whatever you happen to be working on, actually just sort of engaging in a civil society organisation through volunteering or sort of working for it um, can teach you important skills of sort of wider civic engagement. And this has been very important for lots of people within kind of marginalised communities throughout history. And we'll see this in some of the examples in the third section. Um, and, you know, again, a quote I absolutely love repeating and, and won't apologise for is is the one in the Nathan Committee where it says that uh, voluntary service acts as a nursery school of democracy. Um, and I think the other thing, as well as equipping individuals with some of these skills of civic engagement that allow them to kind of uh, take a, a wider part in society and the democratic process... Philanthropy and voluntary action could also build connections between people. Um, so, you know, the, the point here is that it can bring people from different walks of life together and help them develop understanding and sort of solidarity or shared identity. Um, and that can then build some of that bridging social capital that, that might overcome social division. Um, and to there's uh, a quote here from uh, Baroness Stoll, who's the chair of the Charity Commission for England and Wales, who I mentioned earlier, kind of uh, more in the context of concerns about some of what she said. But uh, there's another quote of hers that I think is really uh, something I very much agree with, where she says, charitable behaviour has a unique potential to bridge divides and help us confront uncertainty with purpose and hope. Acts of charity bring people together in place and in shared aims, attitudes and achievements, which I think is a really good summary of this point. And I think particularly at a moment in time when lots of people are concerned uh, about division within our society, I think this is a really important point. Okay, well, that's an extremely long opening section. um, And that sort of finishes the positive view. So in the next section, what we want to come do, uh, do is come back and look at some of the sort of potential downsides or challenges that philanthropy might face when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back. And in this section, what I want to do is look at some of the potential weaknesses of philanthropy 
or uh, the sort of challenges it might face when um, when it comes to addressing issues of diversity and inclusion. Um, so the first one um, is uh, is around the idea of paternalism. So it, it's a kind of long-standing critique of philanthropy that even when well-intentioned, the the sort of power dynamics uh, within it and the way that it's practiced can be kind of uh, paternalistic rather than empowering. So you know the point here is that even very well-intentioned funders can cause problems if the approach they take is to kind of decide what the needs are and the best ways of addressing them without engaging the people and communities actually being affected by the issue. Um, uh, and I used in the slides as a, I, mean, I could have chosen quite a lot of examples, but there's a great um, Puck cartoon from 1901 uh, called The Christmas Reminder where Andrew Carnegie is pictured sitting at a desk um, in front of a sort of roaring fire, obviously at wintertime, and he's looking over... Um, sort of plans for yet another new Carnegie library and the, the little impish sort of cherubic puck character is tapping on his uh, shoulder and trying to direct his attention towards two uh, kind of obviously uh, destitute people at the doors basically kind of saying you know it's very nice that you're planning on building another library Andrew but uh, perhaps maybe before you do that you could think about helping the more immediate needs of the these people um, who are starving on the streets Um and you know this kind of question of paternalism um some have have taken this on to sort of say it's not just you know individual instances of uh of philanthropy being practiced in a paternalistic manner but it actually kind of raises wider concerns about the imbalances of power inherent within philanthropy and and it has kind of important implications for the relationship between philanthropy and issues of, of justice um, so Oscar Wilde for instance um, in The Soul of Man Under Socialism um, so he sort of said you know we're often told that the poor are grateful for charity um, and he said some of them are no doubt but the best amongst the poor are never grateful they are ungrateful discontented disobedient and rebellious and they are quite right to be so charity they feel to be a ridiculously inadequate mode of partial restitution or a sentimental dole usually accompanied by some impertinent attempt on the part of the sentimentalist to tyrannize over their private lives why should they be grateful for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table they should be seated at the board and beginning to know it so again he's making the point there about paternalism you know with somebody trying to um uh, the the philanthropist trying to kind of tyrannize over the private lives of the people who are recipients of their philanthropy but also he's starting to draw an important distinction that we'll, we'll come on to more in a moment between the idea of charity, which is sort of the idea um, of people getting um, money through a, a gift freely given, and the idea of justice, where you are sort of demanding uh, restitution or something as a right. Um, and you know the differences in terms of what the relationship is between the giver and the recipient in those two cases um, and this is a really important question as we'll see afterwards in lots of um, uh, kind of campaigns around diversity and inclusion because um, people sort of start to have quite different views about whether or not philanthropy um, is a, a kind of useful way to pursue those means dependent on where they sit on that spectrum between charity and, and justice but before we come back to that i just want to also flag up um because I, I love this quote um but uh, friedrich engels had something to say uh, about this issue and unsurprisingly perhaps he was even uh, less nice about charity than oscar wilde but um he he said he said philanthropic institutions forsooth 
which is definitely not a word that gets used often enough these days. But he says, um, as though you rendered the proletarians a service in first sucking out their very lifeblood and then practising your self-complacent pharisaic philanthropy upon them, placing yourselves before the world as mighty benefactors of humanity when you give back to the plundered victims the hundredth part of what belongs to them. Charity which degrades him who gives more than him who takes. Charity which treads the downtrodden still deeper in the dust, which demands that the degraded, the pariah cast out by society, shall first surrender that last that remains to him, his very claim to manhood, shall first beg for mercy before your mercy deigns to press in the shape of an alms the brand of degradation upon his brow. So, you know, I present that without comment, and I'm definitely not endorsing it as a viewpoint, but I think it's a very strong statement of that distinction between uh, the kind of charity uh, as as a as a way of looking at this relationship between the, the haves and, and the have-nots and what that means in terms of questions of sort of expectation um, and gratitude on the part of the recipient and justice where it's seen as more of a, a duty um, within society for people to, to redistribute that wealth and that the people uh, in receipt of it should be able to demand uh, that, that, that they get that, that assistance. Um, and I think uh, it, it's worth um, saying that, you know, in these cases, and particularly, um, you know, when you, you look at someone like Engels, it's not just um, that philanthropy in itself is kind of problematic because it entrenches existing power imbalances and and kind of you know uh obscures this uh distinction between charity and justice it's it's sort of even worse in that um you can't let philanthropy for these critics kind of off the hook because it is it is well-intentioned and doing good the problem is that providing uh, by providing a means for those with wealth to sort of do something and to address the symptoms of inequality and other social problems but without being forced to kind of address those deeper underlying structural causes, um, it kind of does just enough that it it obscures the need for more radical reform. Um, and there's a good quote here, I guess, a kind of <laughs> slightly less aggressive one than, than Engels, from Martin Luther King, um, who very famously said, uh, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice which make philanthropy necessary. Um, so, you know, I think this question that we're that we're coming to here between charity on the one hand um, and uh, and sort of justice on the other um, is really important within the history of, of kind of campaigns for diversity and inclusion, as I mentioned, because I think on the one hand, those who favour pragmatism to some extent are likely to accept at least in the short term that there's a need for philanthropic or charitable support because you know that's kind of required to keep the movement going but those who are more idealistic perhaps might argue that it's better not to take that philanthropy in the first place because it kind of undermines the case for the necessity for more radical action. And, you know, this is something that we've seen in the history of social movements and it's something that we see, you know, even today in, in modern social movements like Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter where there are kind of pretty heated debates about this very question. Um, uh, and then the the other issue that I that I want to, to just mention about the kind of possible downside of philanthropy, which is slightly separate, is that actually um, 
in a way, philanthropy could be a victim of its own success when it comes to uh, addressing issues of diversity and inclusion. So we kind of mentioned right at the outset that one of the things it does is support uh, a kind of pluralistic civil society and thereby overcome the tyranny of the majority. But some people have pointed out that actually if philanthropy is too successful in doing that and promoting kind of diversity so widely that you get a proliferation of so many different groups and kind of subgroupings within a particular community or around a particular cause, you can get a form of uh, a kind of hyper pluralism where it becomes very difficult to uh, decide you know in which direction to go or who, whose views sort of take priority within that particularly when you start getting kind of disagreement or conflict within a community um, and there's a, an interesting paper by Kristen Goss called uh, Foundations of Feminism How Philanthropic Patrons Shape Gender Politics which I'll put a link in the show notes to um, but her question within that is uh, it sort of speaks to this she says does philanthropy encourage a robust group-based politics or quash it? Have foundations contributed to the fragmentation of US society by encouraging identity politics? Or have foundations contributed to the unification of the United States by bringing previously marginalised groups into social, political and economic life? Um, which is you know, kind of the point I'm trying to make here. And she, she sort of goes on in that paper to identify the possibility that uh, the involvement of philanthropic foundations in um, the sort of the women's movement in the latter half of the 20th century actually had the effect of creating so many different kind of sub-identities within it and sort of interest groups that it was more difficult uh, at a macro level for them all to feel like they were part of some sort of coherent and consistent women's movement and thereby it perhaps kind of imperiled some of the uh, or sort of impaired some of the chances for driving that overall women's movement forward and I think this is certainly something that you can see in lots of other examples of campaigns for diversity and inclusion and the the other potential problem um, that I'll I'll flag up just briefly um, because it's a whole topic that you could you know go into uh, a lot if you, you sort of uh, looked at a lot of the evidence um is is around kind of representation of diversity within the world of philanthropy and kind of philanthropic institutions themselves um which is you know essentially most of the evidence suggests that there there is nowhere near enough diversity in the workforces or leadership of organizations within the non-profit or charity sector um and certainly when we're talking about the role of philanthropy and philanthropic institutions in driving diversity and inclusion, you know, it's very easy to see that there's a strong argument that if those organisations themselves or if the, the sort of makeup of that community of, of philanthropists is not itself very diverse, then um, that is probably going to undermine its ability to drive diversity and inclusion Um apart from anything else because if you are relying on people who are not members of those communities themselves to make the decisions about it then you immediately get those challenges of uh, sort of paternalism and not empowering uh, and sort of making decisions for people rather than engaging them uh, in the decision making process um, and this is where we we come on to whether there are kind of different models of philanthropy and things like participatory models which um, uh, we recently obviously had a, an episode of the podcast talking to Rose Longhurst about Edge Fund and some of her uh, wider interest uh, in that so certainly if you're interested in that I would I would recommend checking out that podcast 
Um, and hopefully that gives some sense of you know some of the criticisms that could be levelled at philanthropy when it comes to driving diversity and inclusion. Um, and I think it's important to say before we finish this section that you know anybody who listens to this podcast um, will be aware that it at this moment in time there is a kind of wider climate of criticism of philanthropy as a whole so i think some of these potential challenges around diversity and inclusion need to be put in that context because a lot of the the challenges i raise kind of relate to wider points made by people like rob reesh or alan uh, girida radas or rucker bregman or, or other critics um so so i think you know it's kind of they don't exist in in isolation and i think um you know, as with all of these things, engaging with criticism and understanding it and understanding how it can be answered or overcome means that we will end up with approaches to philanthropy and models that are better in the long run because they they avoid some of these pitfalls. Um, Okay, so that brings us to the end of that section, and we're already running very long, aren't we? Um, But in the the final section, I just want to run through some historical examples that highlight some of these key themes, so stay tuned for that. Okay, so in this final section um, of this already overlong podcast, uh, I will attempt to run uh, relatively quickly through a few examples of kind of... um, uh, campaigns for diversity and inclusion uh, or kind of on behalf of marginalized communities where philanthropy has played a role and just rather than going into any detail about the specific histories of those just kind of pick out um, where they typify or sort of highlight some of the the wider kind of uh, strengths or weaknesses of philanthropy that we've already talked about so the the first example i want to touch on is the anti-slavery movement which is kind of one that always gets cited when you're talking about the historic role that the philanthropy and civil societies played in terms of campaigning for social change um, and i guess you know uh, it's a very long and complex and extremely interesting history um what it uh, what it kind of highlights in terms of the issues we've been thinking about in this podcast to me is very much around that benefit that philanthropy can take a long-term view because you know the the battle to uh, abolish slavery certainly didn't happen overnight or even in a couple of weeks i mean it was a battle that took you know 40 or 50 years um or more from from start to finish um it also typified that strength of of uh, philanthropy and voluntary action as something that can bring people together from different walks of life around a common cause because it was very much a movement that had widespread support f- across kind of class divides and it was uh you know there were there were sort of the high profile uh, people like william Wim- wilberforce and granville sharp and others but there were also lots of local groups that involved people from the working classes middle classes and upper classes all kind of united behind their desire to 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 do away with what they saw as just kind of pernicious uh, social evil um it's also interesting in terms of the range of tactics that were that were employed so you know we we talked about the the fact that you can use a sort of range of different tactics over their lifetime of of trying to drive uh, forward uh, on on an issue and um, there's certainly something you saw in the anti-slavery movement so you know there's a lot of 
traditional you know kind of parliamentary debates and and engagement in that way it was uh, attempts to sort of shift public opinion using things like uh, you know fiction and art to do that um, even quite innovative things like there's you know famously they got Josiah Wedgwood who was a supporter of um, of anti-slavery um, to uh, to come up with a design for pottery which was then sold to kind of fundraise for for the movement more as a picture in one of the slides uh, in the slide deck that I'll link to of the um, of the the design that he came up with with the slogan um, "Am I not a man and a brother?" with a sort of slave on his on his knees praying. Um, so so I think you know it kind of it shows you quite a, a few things, and there are definitely more you know more things that you can pick up on in the detail of the anti-slavery movement. Um, the, the next example I want to to look at is around the the kind of fight for for civil rights, particularly in the U.S., which again is you know an endlessly fascinating subject to me and, and a kind of incredible history. Um, and the things that I that I want to to pick up on here are certainly firstly in the kind of earlier phases of it. I think it typifies that point about philanthropists being able to tolerate risk to some extent and to kind of go against uh, the grain. Um, because obviously, and you know, certainly during the Jim Crow era, um, segregation and kind of racial segregation was the law. So actually, uh, in order to kind of support um, causes that, that went against that, you were kind of, uh, even if not going against public opinion in all in all areas of the US, going against the law in certain parts of it. I mean, you can see some, you know, a range of kind of fascinating philanthropic figures here, some of whom we've talked about before on the podcast. So um, one is Madam C.J. Walker, who I think I, I talked about in more detail in the episode on, on philanthropy and women, but she's a, an incredible figure. Um, so she was a self-made millionaire at a time when being uh, black and a woman in the Deep South put her at an enormous disadvantage, but she made her own money through selling uh, kind of hair products, uh, hair system and uh, preparations and then she used that money um, for a kind of wide range of philanthropic endeavors around uh, economic empowerment for black women but also supporting civil rights and, and organizations like the NAACP. Um, then you've got figures like Julius Rosenwald who um, you know is a, fa- a fascinating philanthropist so he was uh, again you know somebody I've talked about before on the podcast but he was the CEO of Sears and Roebuck department store in Chicago, and he was a Jewish philanthropist, but he ended up focusing a lot of his uh, philanthropy on uh, a program of school building in the Deep South. Um, and then latterly, perhaps even more interestingly, um, a fund, a sort of time-limited fund that gave small grants to um, black artists and writers and scientists and, and kind of civic leaders um, at, at a point where, you know, that, that amount of money would enable them to keep on with their work or their studies. And, you know, the list of people then who went on to be kind of black cultural icons and leaders of the, the civil rights movement later on is is very, you know, is incredible. Um, and then also, you know, kind of extremely well-known figures like Andrew Carnegie, who I, you know, said some some disparaging things about off the back of that putt cartoon earlier on. Um, you know, it's certainly worth noting that when it came to the issue of, of race, he, you know, was willing to go against the grain. Um, so he um, he met Booker T. Washington and was very impressed by him. And then he subsequently supported um, his work at the Tuskegee Institute, which was the first private university for black people uh, in the United States. And there's actually a kind of Carnegie uh, library there. 
Um, and then, sort of, as you as you move on, the story of philanthropy and civil rights becomes increasingly one of an interplay between institutional funders and movements um, to some extent. And there's some really interesting examples here of the role philanthropy can play. So, around that kind of role of taking a long-term view and funding research and an evidence base, um, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Um, was one of the the major, if not perhaps the only funder of a a seminal study by the uh, Swedish Nobel Prize winning economist Gunnar Myrdal, um, which was published as an American dilemma. Um, It's kind of put some actual hard figures around issues of um, of race and sort of segregation in the US, particularly in the education system, um, which was then uh, you know very influential in the eventual uh, Brown versus Board of Education court decision. there's also you know, really interesting examples like the Stern Family Fund. Now, this, this is a fascinating organisation, but Edith Stern was actually the daughter of Julius Rosenwald, um, but she then married a man called Edgar Stern. Um, and, you know, she very much inherited her father's approach to philanthropy and that she was, you know, extremely philanthropically minded and also quite liberal in, in terms of what she wanted to pursue. Um, but despite the fact she actually brought most of the money to the marriage and that, that a lot of the money in the endowment and the foundation that she set up with her husband uh, was hers, because of the time she lived in and the sort of um, you know patriarchal uh, nature of it, um, her husband got to dictate where the money went. And because he was uh, a, himself a southerner, Albeit quite a liberal one, um, he uh, he actually supported segregation because that was the law at the time. Although he was very much in favour of sort of charity aimed at African Americans, so there was quite a, you know in terms of that distinction between charity and justice, he very much sat on on the side of sort of charity aimed at African American people rather than uh, trying to sort of further their rights or to give them give them justice in relation to these issues. Um, luckily, in a lot of ways for history um he died before edith stern um, and then she performed a sort of sharp right turn um with the the foundation so she turned it into something much more radical that then um started to support things like kind of voter registration and education initiatives for for black people to try and enable them to to much more kind of you know gain their rights and, and achieve justice um and then another example um and one that we we've talked about um as a specific podcast episode actually is the um the garland fund so this is it was actually properly known as the american fund for public service um but it's very interesting in terms of a couple of things certainly around that question of of systemic change um so it was this was a fund a foundation established in 1921 by charles garland um who inherited he was going to inherit some money from his father who was a wall street banker and at first he was going to turn down the money because he was uh, quite a sort of left-wing progressive principled person and he said he would not accept money from a system which starves thousands while hundreds are stuffed and which leaves a sick woman helpless and offers its services to a healthy man so he was going to sort of turn down the money because he you know very much uh, again on that question of of whether it's kind of better to be pragmatic and work with with the system as you find it and accept the you know the necessity for charity and philanthropy or it's better to sort of stay out of it and demand radical structural change he was very much inclined towards the latter but he was convinced that 
it would be better for him to take that money and sort of put it to, to good uses. So he did that and set up this fund uh, called the American Fund for Public Service, which you know had pretty kind of progressive and radical ideals and was time-limited and all these sorts of things. It was a really interesting fund. But, but the sort of interesting caveat to that, um, uh, and this goes very much to... Uh, a, a brilliant paper by Megan Ming Francis, who we had on the podcast, um, you know, earlier this year, um, who looked in detail at the records of the NAACP and its relationship with the Garland Fund, who was sort of major funder of the institution. And despite the fact that the Garland Fund was, you know, about the most liberal philanthropic organization you could find at the time and was very well intentioned she still manages to trace the fact that it had a kind of determinate distorting effect on the work of the NAACP particularly in shifting it away from a focus on racial violence and lynching towards a a focus on education that was more in line with the Garland Fund's own interests and so she kind of talks about the idea of movement capture which in terms of the wider question of the role of philanthropy in uh, diversity and inclusion is extremely important uh, and something I think we again uh, it faces a lot of movements today like the movement for black lives or extinction rebellion as they come to engage with institutional funders um, moving on to, to another example so this is um, about uh, women's rights and particularly uh, sort of universal suffrage and the right for women to vote. Uh, philanthropy plays all sorts of different roles in this story. Um, so before you even get to the question of universal suffrage, that role of philanthropy in terms of the activity and the value of the activity itself and teaching um, tools of civic engagement was extremely important because historically certainly in the victorian era women had been restricted to what was perceived as the domestic sphere so the sort of home and hearth and they were allowed to manage the the family and the family's affairs but they weren't really supposed to have a role in public life that was for men um and philanthropy was very important as the kind of one means of extending the domestic sphere into the public sphere so women were allowed to get out and about and also sort of to start you know engaging in things like public speaking and campaigning as long as it was on domestic issues through the vehicle of philanthropy again something we've talked about on a previous podcast episode uh, in more detail um and at first you know none of these issues were anything to do with women's rights they were more to do with sort of quite uh, more straightforward issues of poverty and kind of christian care for for those whose station in life was was beneath you but as a result of engaging through philanthropy a lot of women then sort of learnt important tools of engagement in uh, in campaigns and in civic life and in, and in sort of public speaking, these sorts of things, and were then inspired uh, to take up the cause of their own freedom and they became uh, important parts of the suffrage movement. Um, but the other thing that, that uh, is interesting about the, the example of uh, universal suffrage is that philanthropy, there's that question of hyperpluralism because actually philanthropy is quite confusing here because it ends up on both sides of the argument. So, um, yes, there was a movement uh, for universal suffrage and for the vote for women, and there was a lot of philanthropic support for that. But equally, there was a movement uh, against the vote for women, an anti-suffrage movement, and there was a lot of philanthropic support for that. And, and particularly interestingly, it wasn't just disgruntled 
men leading that movement, although obviously there were a lot of disgruntled men involved in it. There was actually a dedicated women's anti-suffrage league, uh, and that had some prominent female uh, supporters, uh, prominent female philanthropic supporters indeed, like Octavia Hill, who was a major sort of female philanthropist of the Victorian era and one of the founders of the National Trust. Um, And actually, in terms of the arguments that were given in favour of anti-suffrage by women, philanthropy was often quite an important part of that because the argument was basically, you know, a lot of these people felt that, yes, women should have a role in public life. They weren't disputing that. But the, the appropriate role was one that was pursued through things like philanthropy, not through engagement in politics. And so actually sort of philanthropy was used as very much as an argument in favour of not giving women the vote. And so you see it's kind of uh, exists on both sides of the argument and its role is is quite uh, is quite difficult to determine in a lot of ways. Um, then uh, another example that, that I just want to, to touch on, which I think raises um, one of the kind of core arguments that we uh, that we raised earlier about um, about the role of philanthropy is around LGBTQ I plus uh, rights and apologies if I haven't got that right. It's I need to make sure I get the the acronym correct. Um, but here I think this this fight very much demonstrates a sort of classic tension between pragmatism and idealism, uh, pragmatism and, and gradual uh, change on the one hand. Um, so you have things like the Homosexual Law Reform Society in the UK, which kind of very much work to try and uh change the law off the back of things like the recommendations of the Wolfenden committee uh and and you know had success in terms of things like the decriminalization of homosexuality in in the UK um but then on the other hand you have you know the much more idealistic radical approach embodied by things like um you know the stonewall rights in the US or the gay liberation front uh in the US and the UK um and you know there are those, as always in these things, on both sides who will argue with hindsight that their approach has, has done more to advance the cause overall. And there's this sort of ongoing tension between them where the the pragmatists see the idealists as unhelpful because they're kind of you know, undermining their attempts to, to bring legitimacy to the cause. And then the idealists see the pragmatists as as part of the problem because they are sort of engaging with the system that they see as broken and this is you know definitely something that you can see around again movements like extinction rebellion and the kind of wider climate crisis at the moment um and then another interesting thing i think it's just worth flagging up about the example of lgbtqi plus rights um is um an interesting question about whether the most important thing in terms of philanthropic support uh, around you know movements and issues of diversity and inclusion is the money or whether actually the legitimacy that comes with the philanthropic funding also has value and sometimes that's even more important so the point here is that if if money or funding comes from within a community or from a niche funder then it's obviously helpful um But if the same money or the same amount of money, say, were to come from a mainstream source um, or one that was perceived as mainstream, does that bring with it further implications of legitimacy that then have their own value and kind of, you know, it gives additional support beyond just the money to to the sort of eventual success of the cause? And this certainly seems to be something you can see in the history of LGBTQI plus philanthropy where 
initially a lot of the support you know philanthropic support where it existed came from specific funders that kind of came out of that community like the horizons foundation or australia or the albany trust here in the uk um and you know they kind of did a lot of the the early work around building identity and developing advocacy capability and and sort of sense of solidarity with other groups and that sort of thing but then moving on sort of further in time and particularly if you look at the 80s and and there being the sort of the AIDS crisis a number of more mainstream foundations and and corporate funders people like Levi's and Ben and Jerry's and uh, the David Geffen Foundation started coming in and and funding issues um, around LGBTQ and particularly on the right side rather than just around kind of um, dealing with health issues. Um, and then the final example that I want to give, which I think very clearly um, raises some of those issues around charity versus justice and paternalism, um, is around uh, the fight for uh, rights for disabled people, or sort of disability rights. So here, historically, the role of philanthropy had very much been one of care. So people uh, with disabilities were seen as, you know, the uh, in need of care and that the proper role of philanthropy was to provide that care for them uh, and it was you know extremely paternalistic um, and sort of I think it would be a sort of paradigm example of that um, and I think the the focus within uh, this this kind of uh, this issue then started to shift in around the 1950s where the idea for the first time of a sort of social model of disability uh, and of giving disabled people rights of their own and allowing them to access those rights started to take hold. So you have things, interesting things like in 1951, um, there was a march by 800 members of the British Limbless Ex-Servicemen's Association um, where they marched to uh, 10 Downing Street, where the Prime Minister lives in the UK, uh, on a sort of um, a form of silent reproach. Um, about the way in which they'd been treated um, after the, the Second World War and the sort of difficulties that they had had and the, the challenges they'd faced within society. Um, and then, you know, subsequently uh, after that, you kind of see within the fight for, for disability rights, um, you know, lots of uh, very clear expositions of um, of some of the issues that we kind of talked about in terms of the challenges of philanthropy. So in some of the slogans you, you have, and you'll see this in the slide deck, it, it says things like, you know, we demand rights, not charity, because people, uh, disabled people weren't particularly interested in, in kind of having charity that was aimed at them. They wanted people to give them the rights that... that um, that, that, that they were owed um, and uh, I think particularly I, I find the slogan uh, nothing about us without us that has been used throughout the sort of disability rights movement uh, is I think a really kind of clear uh, exposition of that idea that actually when you are trying to drive diversity through philanthropy the only real way of doing it is by engaging the people within the communities in question rather than trying to sort of solve what you perceive to be their problems for them. Um, so that kind of brings us to, to a close, which is good because we're closing in on an hour, so that's quite a long one. Um, but I think it's obvious from that, hopefully, that there is a rich history of philanthropic support for issues of diversity and inclusion, um, and also that philanthropy and voluntary action itself has played a really important role in driving it. But there are also challenges and potential pitfalls. Um, so the point is, I don't think we can necessarily assume 
that philanthropy is always seen as an inherently good thing uh, when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Whether or not it is depends on the specific context and on the way in which philanthropy is done. So I think, as I said before, being aware of the criticisms gives us a much better chance of ensuring that whatever form of philanthropy we do pursue manages to avoid those and is seen as a good for society as a whole. Um, so uh, I will put links in uh, in the show notes to lots of the things that I have talked about there. Um, as I said, there's a slide deck that goes along with this, um, and I'll be writing it up as a blog as well. Um, if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, then check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Or if you like things sort of more about uh, chin-stroking, learned stuff about philanthropy, at Philiteracy uh, on Twitter as well. Um, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, uh, give us a nice review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, tell all your friends about us, and we'll see you next time. Bye!